I'm gonna go and be honest with you guys. I don't actually want to talk about this episode. Probably not for whatever reason you're thinking. Okay, so... This was an episode that had been tossed around since Season 4, and they hadn't really figured out what to do with it yet, and they weren't really sure where they were going with it. And finally, Pillar was basically ready to eject the idea entirely, and then Berman pointed out to Pillar that Pillar was upset at how few science fiction-y concepts they had in Season 5 for the lineup. So Berman basically said, why don't you give it to that new kid, Brennan Braga, who had just been promoted to story editor. And they are like, yeah, okay, we'll give it to him. Now... I have said many, many things in defense of Brennan Bragg over the years. To explain myself a little bit, I mostly speak more positively about him than negatively because everyone else speaks negatively about him. Because his negative stuff is obvious. The man wrote Threshold. <laughs> but the fact that the man wrote Threshold does need to be acknowledged. That's something that should be accepted. You know, This is also the man who wrote Generations. But Ronald D. Moore also wrote Generations. In other words, as with all writers, they're not universally good any more than they're universally bad. I just tend to point out the good because no one else seems to. Then we got this episode. Now, I'll go ahead and admit that I enjoyed this episode, because I did. But it's a mess. Like, this is probably one of the most plot-holy episodes I've seen in TNG to date. Right up there with Transfigurations. There is so much about this episode that doesn't make sense. Um, how many of you guys have ever heard of this? And I brought this out just for this. Ah, there we go. This is called The Nitpicker's Guide to Generation. So it's a book by this dude. What's his name? Uh, Phil, Phil Ferrand. I'm sure at least some of you who are aware of Star Trek are aware of this series of books. Now, I point this out. I try not to use this as read because I disagree with a lot of it, but it's, it's a good reading. It's, it's just a, a good thing to help pay attention to stuff. But he's got almost a full page and a half here just on this episode. And then we've got the next one, which is the... A follow-up version, which has another about a page and a half on this episode. Now, that may not sound significant, but again, the point I'm trying to get across is that there's so much to nitpick because so much of it is incongruent with itself and just doesn't follow logic. But none of that's why I don't want to talk about this episode, because that's just another episode of Star Trek. Let's just be honest with ourselves. No, why I don't want to talk about this is because of the titular game. I actually had a speech prepared. Can I just go off topic for just a second? Anybody wants me to talk about the episode proper, come back in like five minutes. I had a whole speech prepared because obviously I'd been knowing I was going to talk about TNG years in advance. You know, I've known this since I was midway through Voyager and well before I started Babylon 5. And I knew people were going to be interested in it because people had already told me they were going to be interested in it. And I, Lord knows I was interested in doing this. I've even talked about how I put TNG aside and refused to rewatch it because I wanted it to be a fresh rewatch for this series. But even back then, before I'd started it, there were several episodes I knew I was going to talk about. And this was one of them. Because I had this whole thing about the game itself and how stupid it is. I, I'm going to dissect more of the, the stupidity of the game itself later. But what I mean specifically is the fact that it's not a game. It is, in fact, almost the opposite of the game. The very idea, I was going to say, of the concept of having a non-interactive game that basically plays itself as being something that would be super addictive and people would be willing to spend tons of time and, and well, money if it was available into is just ludicrous. You probably already know where I'm going with this. That was years ago. I'd say probably about four to five years ago now. Now... The mobile gaming market has developed significantly in the last four to five years. 
And to be clear, I know not all mobile games are crap, and I know that there are plenty of decent mobile games out there. I know this. I've tried several. I spent the better part of a year sitting down and trying every mobile game I could get my hand on, just hands on, just to try and have some more hands-on experience with them, to be able to to speak with some more validity about the topic, rather than just generically looking at the worst examples of it, which got the most press, and then judging the entire genre based on that. But the problem is there are so many mobile games which are garbage, and I'm just going to say that as bluntly as possible. I'm not talking about like. You know, you want to play Bejeweled? No, we're talking about so, so much worse than Bejeweled. We're talking Gutter Trash Drek, which is specifically and deliberately designed to be as predatory as possible in terms of psychologically influencing the player in order to spend as much money on the game as possible and to keep them playing for as long as possible. There's a reason that that saying, turning players into payers, isn't a joke. It's actually a marketing slogan, a real marketing slogan that multiple companies product push, propose, I suppose is the better word there. It's disgusting, if I could just put my whole-hearted, honest opinion out there. Not mobile gaming, but the predatory garbage. That's disgusting. So I can't, but the problem is, having experienced this over the last four to five years, I can no longer just say, oh, this is ridiculous, this would never happen, because it does happen in real life. It's demonstrably happened. I have financial figures from games like FF15, The New Empire, which made $30 million last November, in one month. That's insane. And I'm not trying to get off all preachy or whatever. It's just so much of this episode is predicated on the nature of the game itself. And it's not a game. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as possible. It's kind of like Final Fantasy All the Bravest. It's a semi-interactive wallpaper. And that's it. It's a pseudo-screensaver. That's not a game as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not saying that to be elitist. I'm saying that to define it. Now that's, I suppose, part of the point, that this is something that you just put on, and it just literally directly stimulates the pleasure center of your brain and uses that to brainwash you. It is quite literally not a game. Okay, I'm with that. I do have to wonder how it is so damned effective, though. To start talking about the episode proper a little bit, you notice how, I'm sorry, I have to point this out, you notice how once again someone goes to rise and something horrible happens as a consequence of that? How many times... I need, I need to make a list sometime. How many times in DS9 and TNG someone goes to Ryza and something horrible happens as a consequence? Either en route, like Jordy, uh, back in the mind's eye, or en route, like Bashir, or en route, like... <laughs> you know, there, there's so many examples of that. Or actually there, like Riker, who gets this stupid mind control device there from one of the local women. Or someone posing as one, anyways. And Riker gets it, okay, you know what, I can buy that, because his guard is down, he's on the vacation planet, there's no reason for him to be suspicious of this thing, and really all it does is make him feel good. It is basically the cheapest, simplest form of a high. Like, imagine if you could just press a button and, ah, you feel good, right? (laughs) Now, anybody who knows anything about human psychology knows why that's an extremely dangerous thing, and why you basically shouldn't do that. Um, I, I, I feel blessed to the fact that my mom's a pharmacist and two of my aunts were sh- uh, nurses in their careers because this way I had the information to say that when I had access to these kind of things in uh, the wake of both of my accidents and my surgeries, 
I knew better than to just honk in order to feel better because that is a negative thing that will cause significant issues with regards to you and your chemical dependence on it as well as your psychological uh, dependency, for lack of a better way to put it on it, you know. There's a reason it's called addicting. And now I know we can stretch the definition of addicting to virtually anything, but there is a difference between straight-up chemically addicting, which is what this game is being portrayed as, and then other types of addicting, like, you know, oh, man, I'm totally addicted to Italian food. That's It's not the same thing. Thus, whew, thus, it makes a degree of sense why Riker would get into this. I'd like to think he would have been a little bit more hesitant, but at least Riker's a good vector. Okay, I'm with you so far, Braga. Riker gives it to Troy. Now, Riker and Troy trust each other and are close friends and love each other to death and eventually get married. Okay, fine. Troy to Crusher. Uh, you're starting to lose me a little bit, episode. And we never see from Crusher onwards. Because the next one is Crusher tries to push it on Wesley and fails. Now, that makes sense. Not just because Wesley's going off on a date, but because she is way too pushy about it. In fact, she is one of only two characters in the entire work who actually acts out of character as a consequence of being mind-controlled. I point that out because that makes sense, right? You would imagine that not everyone would just be like, yeah, sure, I'll try this through thing out. Now, I want you to explain to me how Picard played this game, because we never see that. I want you to explain to me how Worf ended up playing this game. Go ahead, I'll wait. <laughs> you see the problem. The idea here is that this game just sort of spread like wildfire, but the, the episode sort of naturally presumes that everyone would get equally addicted to it without having to be forced. And that's important, because towards the end of the episode, Picard says, replicate more and enforce it on everyone. In other words, at that point, now we're finally being open about forcing people to play the game, which implies they haven't been open before, which then states outright, assuming implication is correct, that everyone has willingly been trying the game up to this point, and I call bull. <sighs> Let's rewind a second. Excuse me. Ugh. Troy has a chocolate ritual scene. Now, it's actually a good scene. It really is. It's some good dynamic between Troy and Riker. There's two problems with it. First, the scene implies that Riker has never told Troy he doesn't like fudge. Despite serving to, together for over four years and knowing each other for quite a bit of time before that, this has never come up. Then, it's implied that Troy has never explained her chocolate ritual to Riker. Despite... It's a minor thing, but I think the scene would have worked a little bit better if it had been... Basically, how many times have you seen a scene where two characters basically give the same narration? Like, one person says one line, and the second person says the second line, and the first person says the third line, that kind of a thing. I think that would have worked better, because it would have shown the level of connection these two people have, and have had, and show that he is well familiar with this ritual, and is just basically enjoying the fact that she's enjoying it, even though he doesn't like fudge, as she's aware. It would have completely erased both of those niggles and overall made what is already a good scene excellent, in my opinion. So then Wes comes on. Yay! Wesley's back. Now, one of the biggest complaints I hear about this episode has always stranged me out, because, yes, stranged, it's a word now. It's when Benedict Cumberbatch shows up and time loops you until you disagree with him. And the reason this episode strange to me a bit is because Wesley... Uh, a lot of people say that this episode sucks because Wesley saves the day in it. And no other reason. 
Now, I get the nature of the complaint. The idea is that Wesley saves the Enterprise was such a common cliché, even as early as the second episode of the entire show, that I, I get why that would bother some people. But in this case, it doesn't bother me at all, because Wesley and Leffler and Data save the show, save the Enterprise. In fact, one of the things that I applaud this episode for making perfect sense is that Wesley went to fix Data and then proceeded with basically his secondary plan, and once that fell through, spent all his time and effort leading them on a merry chase as far and long as possible, basically with the goal of just delaying them until Data could actually solve the day and fix things. That's logical, that makes a ton of sense, and is the kind of thing that basically any other Starfleet officer would have done. So that's why it doesn't bother me as much, because it was a team effort, and he was a part of the team. He just happened to be the part of the team that the camera was following. So anyways, Wesley comes on board, and I, I do like this as a Wesley episode. As I've mentioned many times before, I don't dislike Wesley like too many, like quite a few other people do. And I do think he does have some good camaraderie. That's a very important point, because most of the people there are like, hey! And that makes sense. Remember, as I pointed out before, one of the general implications was that the crew of the Enterprise effectively, you know, unofficially adopted Wesley, that he was a ship baby. You know? It's, it's an old naval concept. Um... And that he would that as the you know the ship baby is coming home yes great and they even Worf made a cake, and I love that because that does make sense to me. Worf is the kind of person who is very sentimental. He is extremely sentimental. He just shows it in slightly different ways. So the idea that he would go out of his way to make this cake just to show Wesley yo, it's awesome to see you back, Ensign. You know that's great. I love that. Then Wesley goes down. And he's, you know, it's like, hey, I, I can't get this thing to work. Well, why don't you calibrate it by hand? Now, I've heard people make issue about this scene many times, because the basic idea is that this is Wesley Crusher, the guy who infamously said something along the lines of, well, why don't you just see it all? You know, that would take weeks to lay out in the circuits. Why don't you just see it all in your head? Again, second episode of the show. Thing is, I've said this before, and I'm willing to quote myself on this. Anytime something after season one contradicts season one, I'm willing to basically eject the season one thing in favor of the later thing. To, to acknowledge this as acceptable canon rather than both, even because of the incongruence. Make sense? So to me, it makes more sense that Wesley is brilliant, but not super amazing, over genius. As he mentions in this very episode, he's actually having some issues with the Academy. And that, you know, he's certainly very good at shipboard operations, but that's it. That's his only field of expertise, which I like. It makes sense. It's the Tier 4 concept. Uh, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> I should explain that. Back when I was in IT, uh, we had Tier 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Tier 0 was no technical knowledge whatsoever. They're the people who answer the phones. Tier 1 is your basic tech help and what handles the majority of incoming calls. Uh, tier two was the, was the good people. They were really good, and you know that's that's basically who you escalate to. Uh, tier three was the best, of which we only had like three. They were the sysops, the system uh, operational admins. You know, then tier four was this weird extra concept that they kind of came up with. Tier four's entire purpose was someone who was really really good at this one thing. So if you ever had a VMware issue, you'd always call you know, that guy over there because he was the one who really knew VMware, for example. Or if you really had an issue with specifically, uh, I don't know, I can't think of the name of it all of a sudden, Red Drop or something like that? I, I actually can't think of the name of it. Uh, there was another guy who, that was his thing. So those were the Tier 4. So I like the idea of Wesley 
to pull this back in the episode, being a Tier 4, being really good at Starship engine design or operations or whatever, and kind of lacking in other fields. And so, of course, the fact that he's incredulous at the idea of reprogramming stuff manually, I'm with that, because it means we're basically ejecting the Season 1 Super Wesley, and I'm in favor of that. <laughs> so then, at about the 15-minute mark, we see the first signs that the game is evil, which actually I kind of like. It's something that works in the episode's favor, and I, I didn't remember this until I rewatched this. Braga actually saves the mystery until the 15-minute mark, and only starts to establish any kind of threat at that point, because by that point, it's just a game that's being spread, that people are trying out, and there's no hints of anything untoward. It's just, hey, check out this new thing I found, right? If I had... Uh, this is a dumb example, but if I was on the Enterprise and I had found this new thing called a Game Boy down on Risa and I brought the Game Boy back with me and wanted to spread it, there's nothing wrong with that. At least not, not as long as you don't get really sucked into those Tetris levels, if you know what I'm saying. <clears throat> I also want to give special praise. I mentioned the camaraderie earlier, but there's a very, very wonderful camaraderie just between Wesley and Picard. I've often said that Stuart and... Wheaton, Stewart and Wheaton have great chemistry together. And a lot of my favorite Wesley scenes have been scenes between the two of them. And another of my favorites is this one right here, where the two of them are just sitting and chatting, and Wesley is far more relaxed and open with Picard, and Picard is in return, too. Picard doesn't have... We just covered Disaster, where Picard was so uncertain and hesitant and awkward around the kids. None of that is here with Wesley. He treats Wesley like his son. And I know what you're going to say. Oh, of course, that's because he is his son. Well, I agree. Just not biologically. I really do feel like Picard has in every way adopted Wesley as, as part of his family. And I think it shows. I think it really gets across how much these two care about each other and how comfortable they are with each other. But more to the point, we get some nice setting building. This is not the first time we've heard Booth be mentioned, actually. This is something that will come up in the future as well. And there's this great bit where he mentions AF. And Picard, I love Stuart's acting, he just gets this fond smile as he's remembering distant memories. And he's like, yeah. And he never elaborates. He doesn't have to. His, his tone and his expression get it all across. If you, Mr. Crusher, if you ever have an AF in your life, don't let it interfere with your studies like I did. <laughs> it's a great scene. It's easily my favorite scene of the episode. Now, I don't want to dismiss uh, Ashley Judd, who plays Ensign Leffler. She actually showed up earlier in one of the... It was like three episodes ago, I want to say. But anyway, she's actually shown up before. This is her second and last appearance. I'll talk about that later. She actually does a pretty decent job of the Ensign, too, and handles the, uh, the weight of basically being the main guest star for the episode pretty well. I know technically Wesley's the major guest star, but you get my point. And I, I can't help but admit, though, every time I see her, I think, oh my god, she's a Ferengi! Because she keeps coming up with rules to describe life. I mean, I guess I do that, too. So I guess that makes me a Ferengi. Huh. Anyways, but I, do, I don't have much to say about her performance in general, so much as to say that one of the things I like about her portrayal is the fact that she comes across as someone who very naturally would gel with a character like Wesley Crusher. They're both smart. They're both driven. They're both at about that age. But more to the point, there's kind of a natural... How do I phrase this? She's heard a lot about him because of friends at the Academy. He knows nothing about her, and yet the two naturally gravitate together because of basically because of the difference in their connections to each other. 
I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but that, that makes a degree of sense to me in my head, the way the two uh, connect like that. And of course, as I said before, the two have really good chemistry on camera, so there's a lot of good presentation on that respect. I also like how it makes a degree of sense in its own horrible way that Wesley and her would be two people who would refuse the game because they're more focused on each other. That's logical. That makes sense. As I said before, my main complaint wasn't that Wesley and her were saying no to the game. It's that other people weren't saying no to the game. So that's a nice slot. It, basically, that slides into the episode neatly as well. Not that I'm willing to give the episode too much credit, because as I said, this episode is riddled with plot holes. <laughs> but I'm trying, not, I'm trying not to cover those too much. Um, there's a nice bit where, where uh, Leffler says, Don't worry, it's just a fad. Here next week, gone the next. I think that's the closest thing we've ever seen in character to someone acknowledging the strangely weakly nature of TNG. Uh, not counting the bit on DS9, of course, with Bashir and I don't remember her name. So, uh, Picard uses the game. Okay, Worf uses the game. Sure, whatever. Wes and Leffler both figure out what's going on. Now, that's actually kind of cool. That makes sense to me. They're both tech geeks. They're both somewhat concerned about this thing. They both want to look into it. All of this is logical, and it means they get to spend more time with each other. I know that sounds strange, but I can't... Surely at least some of you were teenagers, probably. How many of you remember being willing to do non-romantic activities because it meant you get to spend more time with the person you were romantically interested in? So anywho... Then there's a bit where they make these mock-ups and successfully dodge the enemy as a consequence of that. Okay, that's logical. Now, what then happens is so bizarre that I don't actually know why it's a part of the episode. Because what happens next... Hang, I do actually have a theory here, but it's pure theory. What happens next is that Wesley has his mock-up in his hands, but he's not using it. And he looks all nervous and uncertain. Now, keep in mind here, I'll just go and tell you the theory now. I think he was trying to get caught deliberately to make sure he was tanking, to put it into simple terms. In other words, drawing aggro, drawing attention to himself. Because in so doing, he would ensure that all of the attention of the crew was focused on him and not Data. Because remember, by the time we see him stumble into the turbolift with Nursagawa, he has already repaired Data, Right. And Data's already figuring out the solution to the episode. So that would make sense. I wish there was something to slightly better indicate that. Knowing Braga, I'm willing to give him credence on that. I really am. But at the same time, this could just be a plot hole, because otherwise there's not a lot of reason for him to just ignore doing that. And, speaking of plot holes, one of the things I find most unbelievable about this entire episode is that the way it's portrayed is basically magic. At multiple points in the episode, we see people who are currently being mind-controlled who operate as if nothing's wrong or unusual at all. They manage to do day-to-day -day ship operations. They, they act completely normally. They react to other people in a personal member level as exactly how they should. There is nothing unusual about them. It's as if someone just flipped a switch in the back of their mind that says, all right, I'm an evil agent now, and nothing else. That bothers the crap out of me. And it's actually very aggravating that, that it's just so... Chunk. More to the point, and this is getting my point across, with the exception of Crusher and Leffler, no one shows any signs of acting differently at all. Now, I've complained many times on Star Trek about the things where someone acts differently and no one else notices. This is... I, I almost feel like Braga deliberately was associating that. It's like, okay... 
No one's going to act differently there before no one will notice. It makes perfect sense. See, the problem, though, again, I can't give Braga credit on this one because when he goes to see Leffler, she acts completely out of character. She acts completely differently. And there was no reason for that. The only reason for that to be there is, though, so, is so that Wesley has a chance to try and get away. If she had acted completely in character, just like everyone else did, it would have been a lot easier for them to actually grab him and force the game onto him. Instead, she actually is like, I'm super evil now. It's your turn, Wesley. <sighs> no, Braga, no. I'm sorry. One of these days I wonder if I'll ever get a chance to meet some of these people, like like these writers and whatnot, who have analyzed their works to, to the nth degree and back, and just have a chat with them. You know, Not, not aggressive, not antagonistic, just... What was going through your mind when you designed this? What was it like working on such a, a, a time budget? And how was it trying to design these episodes bit by bit? You know, I'd love to dig into the mind of some of these writers sometime. So then Wesley does a site-to-site -site transport, which throws them off. Okay, that's brilliant. Except he doesn't do a site-to-site -site transport. In fact, he does basically the opposite of that. Uh, he does a site to transport a transport, and funnily enough, the fact that they find him on transport the, the transport room thing, energy source, is what leads them to eventually finding him. Funny how that works out. I only point that out because it's a shame since he could have used site-to-site -site transport significantly more. In fact, I, I want to give credit to both Wesley in character and Braga out of character because the chase he leads them on is actually pretty good, legitimately. You know, he does a good job of outsmarting the crew for a time. And realistically speaking, Wesley's brilliant, but I don't believe in the Ubermensch, right? Or the Wunderkind, if you prefer. Ergo, I like to think that Wesley is someone who could outsmart them briefly and then be caught. Unlike Mr. Danar back in uh, the Soldier episode. I can't think of the name of it right now. I've never... You know, Wesley's a little more believable on that because he knows this ship inside and out, and he is pretty good with ship operations, right? So the chase is pretty believable and realistic and fairly well done for the most part. And it is logical that he would eventually get caught. I do have to ask for the 7,000th time why he didn't beam himself to the shuttle bay and start and basically set up a program with one of the shuttle transporters to use a shuttle transporter to be able to sight to sight around because he could do that. But again, he was only delaying, so maybe he was planning on getting caught? I don't know. So then they drag him in. It's like, ha, 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 you will be killed. I mean, be reprogrammed. And that's a really messed up looking scene, especially after in the mind's eye, I might add. I kind of wonder what the overall plan here was. Like, at what point was the game going to stop mind controlling, like, the whole Federation? Was that the goal? To just take over the entire Federation just like that? Because of a bad wallpaper? E even the people who made this episode commented on how stupid the game actually looks. A little tuba... And a little discus, woo. <sighs> so then something comes in. This is this is uh, this programming is so thorough that again people were acting completely in character and still fully capable of doing their jobs and and knowing what they needed to know to interact with people and and equipment throughout the entirety of the episode. That is thorough reprogramming, the kind that was done on Geordi. I figured you thought I was going to bring it up, and here I am bringing it up, back in the mind's eye. Now, there it made a degree of sense because of the amount of effort and time that was spent on Geordi, and the fact that it specifically only would have worked on someone with that kind of direct neural interface, that it just wouldn't have worked on other people. That made sense. And, remember, Geordi was going to take significant time to recover. Now, that never came up, but you know what would have helped this episode a bit for me? 
if Jordy was one of the only people who basically didn't get into the game for whatever reason, maybe because something he went through either made him wary of it or because he's already familiar with the kind of impulses that kind of try to control you and therefore was more resistant to it or more cognizant of what it was doing to him. And therefore he took the damn thing off before it had a chance to actually reprogram him. And then Jordy thus being part of the rescue team and being the one to, to come in either with data or instead of data and doing the reprogramming thing. Just a little nice touch there I think would have helped. I think I'd have to work that out a little bit more, maybe smooth that out, because I don't think that works as is. But what I do want to mention is that Data can reprogram this super mega reprogramming with just a few flashes of a light. Sure. Also keep in mind, at least the ship of the week isn't actually a threat. At least it's pathetic and terrible, but... Uh, it doesn't say much for Starfleet security that the Federation nearly gotten taken over by the screensaver because of Riker and Risa. Maybe we should do something about this Risa thing. I don't know. At the end of the episode, Wesley posits a new lie. He says, a couple of light years can't keep good friends apart. And that is true. However, continuity and writers certainly can, because we'll never know, know her, see her, or even reference her ever again. <laughs> we'll see Wesley again, at least. Although whether it's a good thing or a bad thing depends on your opinion. Ugh, I hope you've enjoyed my shattered thoughts on this episode. I'll see you guys next time.